Welcome to The Warrior Poet, where we look at the philosophy of life and business through my years of experience in the SEAL teams, Amazon, and startups. Do you find that you're prone to gut reactions at the provocations of other people? I know I am. We're going to talk about that and more today on The Warrior Poet. Ever wonder what the top 15 time travel movies are of all time? I know I have. Here they are, according to Collider.com. Number 15, Primer. I'd never actually heard of this movie. I'm really excited to see it. It's got uh, interesting cinematography from the looks of it. And it's from 2004. Apparently, there's lots of science in the movie. Uh, One of the good points about the movie, supposedly, is that he doesn't shy away from the science that When I say he, it's writer-director star Shane Carruth. Then at number 14, we have Terminator. Not surprising, it's on the list. About Time is 13. It's from the guy who made Love Actually and Pirate Radio. Back to the Future 2. Then Idiocracy, which I am ashamed to admit. Friends that I have not seen yet. It is on my short list, though. Trust me. I also didn't realize that Luke Wilson was in that. Uh, I see him there in the screenshot. Number 10, Looper, which uh, I actually haven't seen either, but is uh, Gordon Levitt, Jay Gordon Levitt, whatever his first initial is. Um, That's supposed to be really good. Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban at number nine. Star Trek, the reboot, 2009. That's at number eight. 12 Monkeys, solid movie, really solid movie. Uh, I should do an episode just on 12 Monkeys. Uh, Bruce Willis and Brad Pitt, amongst others, are in that, what I would call some sort of sci-fi classic. Edge of Tomorrow, number six. That's the uh, Tom Cruise, Emily Blunt movie. Number five, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. I gotta admit, I'm pretty pleased to see that. Four, Planet of the Apes. I actually (laughs) had only seen clips of Planet of the Apes. And there's a big spoiler on Collider.com. If you're worried about spoilers about Planet of the Apes at this point, considering it was made in 1968, then you expect too much of society on your behalf. But I won't spoil it for you if you don't know what that classic ending is. Number three, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Terminator 2 was phenomenal. Number two, Groundhog Day. I thought that was an interesting one on there. It's not so much time travel as much as time stasis or something like that. Time reboot. Um, I don't know. Maybe it is time travel. Uh, If you haven't seen that, gosh, you really owe it to yourself. Bill Murray and Annie McDowell starring in that, of course. And uh, Harold Ramis, I didn't realize he and Bill Murray uh, really argued a lot on the set of Groundhog Day. And maybe before they were actually on set, um, they had worked together before... And uh, apparently Bill Murray wanted the film to be more philosophical. I think a lot of people who don't know Bill Murray well, I can't claim I know him well on that basis. But for people who aren't that familiar with his work, they might be surprised that he was advocating for the philosophical uh, bent. And then number one. Maybe this isn't a surprise. You've got the classic original by Robert Zemeckis from 1985. Back to the future. 
although I'm not saying we would never talk about time travel at length on this program, this episode is not about time travel exactly. McFly, of course, is the main character in the movie, played, of course, by Michael J. Fox. The name McFly is used most prominently, as it is in that clip, to goad Michael J. Fox's character into some sort of duel or some sort of fight. And (laughs) it's a pretty cool device in the entire Back to the Future trilogy where McFly, Marty McFly, is unable to prevent himself from rising to the occasion when someone goads him and calls him a chicken. All they have to do is taunt him, call him McFly, and then call him a chicken. And then he sort of freezes in his steps and this sort of classic, what did you say, uh, almost like a taxi driver <laughs> sort of uh, homage there. And, of course, he, he gets into whatever battle someone is, is trying to bait him into. I don't know about you, but I find myself having a similar problem. Not necessarily that I'm getting in brawls all the time with people who call me chicken in a physical sense, but whether it's in the workplace or in other venues, I have a tough time not rising to that challenge, whatever it may be. We've talked about all kinds of mental scripts before. That script terminology is probably explained best and maybe made most famous by Robert Cialdini in the book Pre-Suasion. These mental scripts are a kind of automatic click-whir is the phrase Cialdini uses. Our brain goes click-whir and just plays back a script based upon some stimulus. This happens all the time and probably gets worse as we get older. We get set in our ways, and we have gut responses to different things people do or different setbacks or opportunities we find in front of us. And our emotional brain takes over. Daniel Kahneman talks about this a lot in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow. We kind of back-rationalize after the fact in terms of a decision. We've already made up our minds what we want to do, and then we seek facts to confirm that. Everyone knows that confirmation bias is a thing or, or confirmation seeking. A lot of people who are political junkies, I used to be, I confess, I've been clean from politics and uh, reading those kind of blogs and just getting really mad. I've been, been sober now for uh, three plus years, much to the dismay of a lot of my political friends and family, but I feel a lot better. You chicken! Those of you who are into politics heavily, you know that a lot of times you or your friends will have an idea or have a reaction, and then you sort of Google the data that will confirm what your view already is. So that confirmation-seeking, confirmation bias is very widely known. I think that what Kahneman and Cialdini bring to the table is an emphasis on just how unconscious, subconscious, that scripting in our brain can be. 
do you remember that phrase step two like that guy's stepping to or that guy or girl stepped to it was something like that <laughs> but essentially i don't think anyone uses that phrase anymore it means someone is challenging you right or dissing you there are lots of different kinds of provocations though and what will happen in adult society where you're not part of a gang, you're not in the military, you're not a kid. What will happen in adult society, especially in the workplace or perhaps on the sideline of your soccer game, is a challenge will be presented in a much more passive, aggressive way. No one who is clever, especially no one who is a student of Robert Greene's 48 Laws of Power, which I highly recommend, even for those who aren't going to be manipulators. No one sophisticated, in the least, is going to make it obvious that they're challenging you. They'll want some sort of plausible deniability. So they'll use words and actions that can be explained if you give them the benefit of the doubt. And that's the skill of... <laughs> manipulators is they use means that are available to them where good actors or neutral parties could not clearly determine that they were acting in the wrong. So some challenge is presented to you. Maybe it's a, an idea you have, maybe it's a, criticism you have of a proposal maybe it's a question you have and what might come back to you is a challenge to maybe your intellect a challenge to your experience maybe it's a challenge to someone on your team in terms of them not being up to snuff or that they dropped the ball or maybe someone will kind of assign you work to substantiate your claims, which that's not always a bad thing, substantiating arguments you make or positions you have, but you'll kind of get assigned work by someone who isn't your boss, isn't an investor, isn't a customer. It's easy to fall into the trap of, I'll show you. We talked about in the episode screenwriting, which I'll link in the show notes, about how many people this is not an uncommon thing. Many people will spend an inordinate amount of time drafting a really long email explaining why they're right and the other person is wrong. Or maybe just defending that kind of thing. You address all the arguments and counter-arguments in this long email, which could take an hour as opposed to an actual meeting. Whether it's work you're sort of being assigned or assigning yourself, whether it's some defensive honor on the part of yourself or your people, whether it's trying to prove you're right, all of these things are counterproductive. You're going to waste lots of time and you're going to take risks in your communication and your behavior that maybe you really are right. But chances are they're putting you in some danger when you perform those actions and you rise to that person saying, McFly, are you chicken? What's wrong, dude? You yell! So what we want to do is 
instead of being unhinged, right? It's a, it's a great word to describe someone who is uh, a little angry all the time or reactionary. Of course, none of us believe we're the ones who are reactionary. But if you call someone unhinged, it's a pretty powerful word. Think of that. We want to be the opposite of that. We want to be comfortably but securely hinged. And of course, I feel the need to say here that I'm not talking down to you. These are things that I need to work on myself. In the SEAL teams, I experienced myself and no guys who had gotten into arguments about whether they should go on a mission, perhaps one that was highly risky and where the intelligence was doubtful, there can always be that person saying, you know, are we chicken collectively? I had a person I worked with who used to say at one time, on one of our Iraq deployments, you can always come up with an excuse not to go. And he wasn't, he was speaking huge sort of generally. One can come up with an excuse not to go all the time. And yes, that's theoretically true, but used in a certain context, it makes it sound like the person who's saying, actually, maybe we should wait for intelligence to mature. Maybe we should confirm some things, or maybe we should just go attack a different target, or maybe we should wait until we've got the right helicopters or the right number of forces on the ground it makes it seem like that person is a coward and i i have a buddy who actually had someone call him that and my buddy is definitely not a coward you can imagine those of you even who have never been in the military never been in a combat zone you can put yourself in that position it'd be very easy to take the bait of well i'll show you I'm not a coward. Yeah, let's bring all of our guys and risk their lives and dogs and interpreters and maybe intelligence sources. Let's just go and risk all of that for this mission just so I can show you that I'm right, you're wrong. I'm tough. I'm not a coward. Of course, that would be the completely wrong and irresponsible thing to do. Takes a little more self-esteem a little more calm, a little more mental stability, a little more personal responsibility and responsibility as a leader to take a step back and just let that kind of bait just totally wash over you. What's wrong, McFly? Chicken? Look, we should also state here clearly, perhaps the obvious, you're probably already thinking this, that, hey, these kind of provocations can even be unintended. I know that I was burned really badly at Amazon. This is within the first year that I joined. I was in Amazon four years. In that first year, I wasn't used to political maneuvering, and I got burned extremely badly, was very blindsided. And for years after that, and I probably still have even retained a little bit of this watchfulness, I, I was a little bit paranoid about other people in the workplace and their maneuvering. And the reality is that the truth is somewhere in the middle. I, th I think the truth is actually a lot farther away from what I was used to in the military. I'll link to a LinkedIn video that I posted in the show notes where you can see me talk about this a little more and maybe the difference between military culture and private sector culture. I think even those who 
have no idea about the military or those who do will all find it valuable. And hopefully there's a little common ground there and, and some improvements we all can make. The point I'm making, though, is that these provocations can be in your mind. And even though I made clear that, hey, manipulators, bad actors will do things in ways that are subtle and that can be explained if we assume positive intent. And I, I generally do for myself and the teams that I lead try and instill that assumption of positive intent. But we got to be honest with ourselves. We might just be imagining that this person means us harm or does not have our best interest at heart. What do you do about this problem of the McFly syndrome? Okay, well, let's first think about competition versus opting out. You don't always need to compete. You don't always need to play the game. You can opt out of that particular sort of sub game or play an entirely different game altogether. Secondly, remember, it's not a zero sum game. Most things in life are not zero sum games. Most things in the modern economy and in relationships have outcomes where everyone can win. So try and seek those outcomes and don't assume that we're hunter-gatherers trying to gain fruit from the last tree before winter. Finally, realize if you are especially susceptible to this, be self-aware about your own personal proclivity to pull a McFly. Guys may do this more than women. I would, I would guess, probably yes, although to be fair, I'm not astute at all about the sort of social complexities amongst women. So I could be totally off base there and would invite some of our women listeners to reach out on Instagram and let me know if I'm wrong on that. I would say, having been someone who's played a lot of sports, that people who have done that are just naturally going to be more competitive and see things as threats and challenges more and see the need to prove themselves. That gets into the next one. I've talked about treats syndrome before. That's where you're used to performing in school and in other venues and you study for the test, you do well, you get a treat and you get really good at that. A lot of people in the sort of type A ambitious class, especially those in technology, have serious cases of treat syndrome. Whereas those who are authors and painters and social workers are much less likely to have that problem. And, and you're looking at a host here who definitely is working himself out of treat syndrome over the last several years. So if you've got that behavior, then you feel generally like you need to prove that you're the one who's right, that you're the smartest in the room, that you got the A plus on the test, and that your name is listed in whatever honors you expect. But in reality, the modern workplace, modern relationships, life is not like school. Go figure. Next, how much do you identify with your job? We said this can happen outside the workplace where someone 
goads you and you rise to it. Or you imagine something like that and your your script goes click were. We've said it can happen outside the workplace, but the workplace is probably where you'll see this problem manifest for you more where you sort of hear the chicken sound or you hear someone saying, you know, I'm smarter than you, not in so many words, and, and you rise. So if you identify with your job too heavily, you're probably likely to pull a McFly as opposed to someone who just works to live as opposed to trying to achieve all their self-actualization through work. Next, obviously, if you're focused on promotion or making more money, if, if those tangible ends are front and center for you, then you're going to see everyone else as a threat. So, you know, put that aside, be self-aware again. I feel like I'm asking everyone to be self-aware a lot lately, um, but maybe I'm just talking to myself. Along the lines of promotion, there's that Kissinger quote, I think where he's talking about arguments on campuses or something like that, where he used to say amongst professors, the arguments were so fierce because the stakes were so small. And yes, that promotion might seem like it means a lot to you now. That little extra 5%, 10% money might seem like it means a lot, but in the grand scheme of your life, in the grand scheme of what you're probably trying to achieve in life, those stakes are pretty small. So chill out. I think we could also probably rephrase that Kissinger quote as the spoils were so small. Just a side note there. And then finally, if there's some sort of disconnect between what you really want to do and what you're doing or who you really are and the character that you're acting, I'm guessing that that will lead to you to have more reactionary responses than if you're actually pretty content and satisfied. That is it for today. Be careful. Remember, think about opting out versus competing at all times. Secondly, it's not a zero-sum game. There's ways for everybody to win. Thirdly, be self-aware. Realize if you're especially susceptible, say this to yourself, and you'll probably be a little calmer and not take the bait next time. You gutless yellow pie slinger! <laughs> yellow belly. You damn fool! Dude it up, egg-sucking gutter trash! Here is that time of The Warrior Poet, where we get all the way wet. Footnote number one, Interstellar was not on that list of 15 movies that are the best time travel movies ever. I must insist that it be somewhere on that list. Some people didn't get Interstellar, or some people just didn't like it, uh, which I guess is a reasonable stance. I thought it was really great. And I think it belongs on that list for sure. Footnote number two, there are these things that are dominant moves, I would say, or dominant words in the episode Different Strokes, episode 33. Diversity is a dominant move. You can always say we need more diversity and no one can really argue against that. To be clear, for anyone who thinks that I'm anti-diversity, please actually listen to the episode. I think you'll find I present, hopefully, a balanced view there. Meanwhile, coward is also a dominant move. So that's a, a mental model that I like to have in my mind that I've been building out is 
what are all sorts of dominant moves? And I, I, I think I, I view them more in terms of negatives. I, I can probably come up with more negative examples, meaning I don't actually want to do that myself. I don't want to play that card, but I need to be on the lookout when other people do it. And I need to prepare the teams I lead to navigate those situations where other people play those cards. But there are also positive examples of dominant moves that where you do want to make that move because it benefits you, benefits society, benefits your customers. Footnote number three, just to be clear, I've talked about Simon Sinek's Infinite Game a few times over the last, let's call it 10 episodes. I just want to be clear that when I'm talking about zero-sum game, I'm not talking in the same world. It's not the same conceptual frame as the sort of infinite game. So um, many of you will already know this, but just to make sure uh, we're all on the same page and and not to talk down to anybody, when we're talking about zero-sums games, there's such a thing as a positive-sum game, and that's that's the game where everyone wins. And if I get something, you don't necessarily lose something. The infinite game concept is something totally different altogether. And we might deep dive that at another time here on The Warrior Poet. Take care. property of Rainiac Productions. If you like The Warrior Poet, there's more great content on Instagram. Follow Shri, The Warrior Poet, on Instagram. That's S-R-I, The Warrior Poet. You can also get to know me on a personal level by following Shri, actually, on Instagram as well. The Warrior Poet is produced by Laddie, with special contributions by Spoonman and me, Shri.
No, 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 no. Kevin. Mina do it. Spita. Ah!